What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney For 2 decades Annie Duke was one of the top poker players in the world In 2004, she bested a field of 234 players to win her first World Series of Poker bracelet. The same year, she triumphed in the $2 million winner-take-all invitation-only World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. In 2010, she won the prestigious NBC National Heads Up Poker Championship against her mentor, Eric Seidel. Annie is now a highly sought-after public speaker, coach, and author. Her newest book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, reveals to readers the lessons she regularly shares with her corporate audiences, which have been cultivated by combining her academic studies in cognitive psychology with real-life decision-making experiences at the poker table. If you want to learn how to make better decisions in your life, this is the episode for you. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. Annie Duke, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing very well. It's funny, preparing for this conversation, I know this is one of those conversations where I am absolutely outmatched in terms of the psychological warfare you could play with me, but do you ever <laughs> do you ever walk into a room feeling absolutely outmatched? Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny. Like, I'm trying to figure out how to... I don't view the world that way. Um, I mean, obviously, if I sit down, if I sit down at a poker table or... Uh, I'm, you know, playing tennis or something where there, um, 
it's that kind of interchange, then I'm certainly thinking about the matchup, right? Um, and sometimes I might come to the conclusion that I feel outmatched at a poker table or at a tennis court, but there's usually some way that I can find in. But in my normal conversations or when I normally walk into the room, I'm not so much thinking about it as a matchup. So I don't, I don't really know how to answer your question. I mean, there's definitely rooms that I walk into where everybody's like way smarter than I am. But I don't think about that as being outmatched. I think about that as like an opportunity to learn. I love that. That's that's where I was hoping this question would go about your opportunity to learn. So let's break down you walking into a new scenario, a new room. Maybe it is a poker table. What are the inputs you're you're looking for immediately? So this actually gets into something that's actually really important about decision making and kind of understanding what is the situation that you're looking at. So um like I give this analogy of if you know nothing about football, for example, and you're newly watching uh, people play football, it looks like 11 people kind of randomly running around on a field. And the more that you have a framework, the more that you understand, uh, you know, which is the offense, which is the defense, what are the positions, what are they supposed to be doing, what are the measures of success or failure, you start to be able to chunk what you're seeing. Um, into things that make sense. So you're, pro- you're actually processing that information in a different way, uh, given, given now kind of what you know about the game. So any situation that you're in and any decision that you're facing, um, you can really approach that same way to say, am I looking at kind of like random movement or have I thought in advance about what the important structure is, like the structures are that I'm supposed to be paying attention to in order to be able to understand what I'm looking at. So, and this is, it isn't just for poker, but you asked about poker. So I'll give you the poker example. There's certain things that I know that I need to, to pay attention to. I'll give you a sample. It's not an exhaustive list, but I need to pay attention to position and position refers to how early in the betting or late in the betting you are. And, uh, I need to pay attention to that because I need to be looking at, uh, whether my opponent is entering the pot early in the betting or late late in the betting because that changes the range of hands that they're likely to have. I need to be paying attention to how frequently they are willing to enter a pot because you always have this choice to cut your losses and fold because the more frequently they're entering the pots, that widens the range of hands that they could possibly have. The less frequently, frequently they enter the pots, that narrows the range. I need to look at what the the balance is between early position and late position. Some people are very, very picky early and very not picky late. Some people are relatively flat, which means they're not paying very much attention to like that positional element. So I'm not going to bore you with more of those things. But I've kind of thought about those things in advance and said, here are the things that help me to understand how to build a model of this person. And then what follows from that is kind of two things. One is that I can more quickly uh, update my model of the person that I happen to be across. So I, I, I'm a faster learner about what they're doing because I have it set into a framework. And then the other thing is that I'm actually paying attention. It forces me to pay attention to the things that I are actually important for understanding the game. And it gives me a framework for being able to discuss that with you later, for example. 
And I think that this is something that's actually really, really, really important for all decision-making. I think too often we haven't thought in advance about what's the framework that I'm supposed to be slotting this information into, both in terms of my ability to read a situation very quickly, because I really understand what the key components are that I'm supposed to be paying attention to, but also to help me actually pay attention to those things that are important and not be distracted by other parts of the narrative. And when I go to get feedback from other people, which is incredibly important for learning, we're both working off of the same framework so that we're working off of a common way of discussing things with each other. And you're going to hold me accountable to understanding that framework. A lot of different directions we can go right now. I'm thinking about the framework and you mentioned being prepared for entering a certain scenario. What's your prep work like prior to coming into something? Let's just call it a poker game. Oh gosh, I, hmm, that's a broad question. Um, I mean, obviously it depends on whether I, oh, there's so many ways to go. Let's, let's do this. For example, let's talk about coming into this podcast conversation. You mentioned before the the call uh, started with the recording that you don't like to receive any questions prior. So already for me, that's an input of something that, that you don't like to have. What, what other things were you considering prior to this conversation? Yeah. So, so that, that's very interesting. So that has to do with, um, the first thing that I need to do is identify what my goals are. Um, so my goals and in coming into a conversation with you are, are very different than what my goals might be if I were, I were to sit down at a poker table. So my goals with you are to allow the conversation to go in a place that, that you actually want the conversation to go in. Um, so that it doesn't become rote. It, I don't end up, uh, just sort of like giving my talking points, but that we actually can go deep. And I feel like if you were to provide questions to me in advance, it would become more rote. I would sort of have my answers prepared and the likelihood that we would go really deep or into unexpected directions it's now lessened. And for me, in terms of my goal, as I, cause I talk to people quite a bit is that for me, in terms of what I, what do I want to get out of a conversation? I want it to be deep and I want it to go into unexpected directions. So I've thought about that in advance and how do I actually achieve that goal? Um, obviously when I'm, when I'm coming into a poker tournament, um, or a poker game and I'm sitting down, my, my goals are now different. My goals are to build the most accurate model of the people that I'm playing against that I possibly can. Uh, those are going to be individual models for each person. And, and to think about what are the ways in which I can leverage strategically uh, who, that, who that person is as a player so that I can maximize my expected value. So in, in that particular case, it actually makes quite a bit of sense for me to do a lot of as much advanced work as I can. Um, in particular, it's helpful if I have played with the players before, that's really helpful, or if there's some information that I can gather about the players that I happen to be up against so that I'm not starting from, I don't want to say scratch because you're never starting from scratch because you know, human, 
human beings have sort of base tendencies that are common across everybody. So you're, you're kind of starting there already, but that I'm not starting with essentially the base rates for generally how poker players play, but that I actually know something more particular about the people that I'm playing against. Um, and then it's about how, how am I doing in terms of finding how to, uh, implement strategies and tactics that are going to, that are going to best maximize against who you are as a, a person. So I have different goals. In one case, I'm playing a zero sum game where I'm trying to take things from you and put them into my stack. Whereas in this conversation, it's not, it's not a zero sum game at all. I'm not in a competition with you and I'm looking to, to, to have you be able to guide that conversation into places that I don't expect. And I consider that a way that we both win in that situation. No, I appreciate the answer there in, in two totally different types of games. So it's fun to hear your framework there. I'm interested in the poker context. Do you use visualization at all? So not really. I mean, it depends on, so, you know, I think visual visualization means different things to different people. So I, I, I want to understand how, how you think about it, because obviously visualization can mean all the way from someone trying to implement the secret. I don't, are you familiar with the secret? So I asked this, I, I have a athletic sports background. So I would use visualization a lot to think about the success outcome of a game, different moves I would use. I use that a lot prior to a game. So I'm just curious as a professional poker player, are you doing anything like that prior to entering a tournament? Right. So, uh, so yes, I mean, so I don't, I, you know, I don't think about visualization in terms of the way that people think about visualization in terms of the secret. Like if you think it, it will happen. I not a big fan of that. Yeah. No, uh, neither am I. <laughs> right. So I just want to make sure that we were talking on the same page. So, uh, I'm a, I am a huge fan of what I call mental time travel. Um, and in particular, what I try to think about is a couple of things. One is that uh, I think that whenever you're going into a situation, and that this is true whether you're uh, thinking about um, in general, like I'm walking into a game and I'm, I'm sort of trying to imagine what that looks like, or if I'm just playing a hand of poker, by the way, because it's the same process, just you know, a microcosm of sort of the macro situation that you're in. Um, at all times I'm trying to think about in two directions. One is forward thinking, uh, if I do X, what do I think the possible outcomes of that are and how probable are, are those outcomes and what are the payoffs for those outcomes and obviously costs. So I'm trying to create a probabilistic decision tree, you know, obviously relatively fast if I'm, if I'm thinking about a hand. Um, but then in, in terms of kind of more in the world of what you're talking about, I actually do a pair of things. Um, one is called a backcast and one is called a premortem. So, and I'm a huge fan of this kind of time travel. So it's thinking about, you know, what's my goal? Uh, if I'm going into, if I were going into, um, a game as, let's say it's a tennis game. And I think what, what's my goal for, for the end of the game, obviously it's to win. Um, and I imagine it's the end of the game and I failed. So this is called a premortem. Um, and I actually imagine, okay, what, what are the things that I did? What happened that caused the failure? 
And then I do more along the lines also of what I think you're talking about, which is what I would call a backcast, which is uh, I'm imagining it's the end of the game and I've succeeded. And what are the things that I have done? What are the things that had, have happened that have caused me to succeed? And I'm broadly thinking about those in two categories. Uh, the decisions that I made that might have uh, contributed to failure, contributed to success, but also thinking about what are the lucky things that have to break my way um, in order for me to have success or failure. So on the poker side, for example, I know that if I'm going to win a tournament, I have to have a lot of 50-50 chances break my way. I have to actually have a lot of like 60-40 chances break my way. So, you know, I'm sort of recognizing that there's this element of luck that I don't really have control over that I have to have break my way. Um, And then what I'm trying to focus on is sort of acknowledging that so that when those things happen, I've prepared myself for them because otherwise when luck intervenes, we can get very emotionally upset and that has a very negative effect on our performance. And so by doing the backcast and the premortem, particularly on the premortem side where you can see where luck might intervene in an undesirable way, uh, you've prepared yourself for it mentally. So you're less likely to have that affect your decision-making badly. But then what I do is I focus on, okay, well, what are the decisions, right? What, what are the decisions that I would have made on the way to success? How do I increase the probability that I'm actually going to make those, those decisions that I've identified? And then also obviously on the premortem side, what are the decisions that I, I, I would have made on the way to failure? And then try to think about how can I reduce the probability that I'm going to make those kinds of decisions. It seems a lot of your frameworks and systems are pretty refined at this point. And I'm interested in 2004 when you won the World Series of Poker, how far along were you in this self-assessment and being able to articulate all of these? So I think it's it's been a building process. So in 2004... It's a good question. Now I have to do some time traveling. I have to do some time traveling back to my state of mind when I'm 2004. And obviously we like to, we we remember having knowledge that we didn't have. So I'm trying not to do that. I'm going to try not to do that. Although I know that I will not do that perfectly. Um, I think that when I first started playing, uh, a lot of it was just really trying to figure out how do I view this game in a way where I'm not seeing 22 random people running around on a field, right? So, so a lot of it was just like, what are the frameworks? What are the things I'm supposed to be paying attention to? Uh, what's the math of the game? A lot of testing out what works and doesn't work. So, uh, so I don't know that I was thinking about it in this broader sense necessarily, certainly in the beginning. By 2002, I know that I was thinking about some of this stuff very explicitly because I was talking on this topic by this point. So starting in 2002, I had been thinking about how does, how does, how does my cognitive science background inform the way that I think about poker? And then how does poker inform the way that I think about behavior, cognitive science, the way that we think, the way that we learn. So I'd already started to think about those kinds of things explicitly. Um, and, and start to implement these kinds of processes at that point. And then I think that uh, what was interesting was that when I added in um, teaching poker, so in 2002, I was actually teaching, I was, I was actually doing keynotes more in the business space. You know, how can poker inform the way that you think about your emotions, the way 
think about risk, the way you think about decision-making. I think there was a big leap for me when I actually started teaching poker because that was a, a moment where I realized that there were a, there was a whole bunch of stuff that I believed about the game that I'd been doing that I felt very confident were good strategic or tactical choices. And when I was confronted with having to actually teach them to somebody where I couldn't kind of wave off the explanation with fancy jargon or where the other person was where the other person wasn't assuming I knew what I was talking about. So an interesting thing that happens when experts are talking to experts is that the other experts will kind of fill in the blanks and assume that the person that they're talking to is filling in those blanks as well, or actually knows that stuff as well. Where when you're talking to somebody who's more of an intermediate or beginner, they can't fill those blanks in. And so they'll start querying you on it. They'll start asking you, but wait a minute, I don't understand. How did you get from point A to point B? And you now have to explain that. How did I get from point A to point B? So what happened was that when I started teaching poker and I had to actually explain these concepts uh, in a way where I couldn't just jargonize them and my listeners weren't going to give me the benefit of the doubt or fill in the blanks for me. Um, so I had to actually justify my ideas in a way where they could come away understanding it and maybe be able to implement it themselves. I just there was a whole bunch of stuff I thought about the game that was pretty cuckoo <laughs> when I actually when I actually had to explain it to somebody where these things that that I had as pretty strongly held beliefs about the game actually turned out to really uh, need a lot of work. And when I had to hold them up to this, what what sort of is the ultimate rational process of being able to convey the reasoning to somebody who does not know? in a way that they can come away feeling like they know. That's sort of holding your ideas up to the ultimate test of, of rational process. I kind of started undoing my game and I realized I need to start holding my beliefs much more loosely. I need to start challenging them much more. I need to start thinking much more about why did I believe these things for such a long time? Um, and I think that that was a very big pivot point for me in terms of really starting in to implement a lot of the strategies that you end up seeing in the book. This might sound like a nuanced question, but I'm interested when you're starting to uncover some of these new ideas and beliefs, how are you actually processing them? Are these things you write down in a journal? Are you just playing this out in, in your mind? How does that work? Well, I kind of had to write them down because I was teaching poker seminars. <laughs> so you know, I highly recommend to anybody who's trying to become a better thinker and a better decision maker that you take on a mentorship role. It, it's really amazing. You know, I mean, if you think about it in the extreme, that idea of when you're talking to a six-year-old and they say, why? And you explain and they say, but why? You know, why is the sky blue? And you're explaining, you know, light reflection, you know, refraction and uh, that it's the blue part of the spectrum that gets refracted and then they say, why again? <laughs> and then you have to explain it again. Then say, why again? And then you have to explain it again. That really puts your knowledge to the test, right? That constant why. And when you get into a mentorship position, as, a, assuming that you're willing, you know, obviously there, there are certain mentors who are just, here's my knowledge. 
don't challenge me. Um, and just take this as gospel truth. I mean, I'm not talking about being that kind of mentor because I, I don't think that does particularly good for the mentor and it certainly doesn't do any good for the mentee. But when you really, when you really take on a mentorship role in the sense of really trying to work with someone to communicate what your experience is, but also take it as an opportunity to learn from them. Um, I think that then essentially you do have to workshop your ideas, right? You, you do have to write them down. You do have to mull them over. You do have to try seven different ways of explaining it um, and try to sort of land on what the best way to explain it is. You do have to acknowledge when there are holes and you have to go rework an idea because the demand of you now is, is to be able to coherently communicate those ideas to somebody else. And you're not allowed to just say, well, this is my gut feeling or I know this is right or you know, this is the way I do it, that, that that just becomes completely unacceptable. So all of these things ended up getting written down. And as I was, as I was workshopping these seminars with, with, really with the students who were in these seminars, and then that then made my speaking to business audiences much better because I started, I think, to communicate the ideas much better to them as well, because I, I really understood that here was this thing that I, I really felt like I had a lot of expertise at, and I discovered how big a percentage of that stuff really actually needed to be re reworked and rethought. And that really seeped into the work that I was doing business with business audiences, where I started getting this real focus on uncertainty, real focus on this idea that you have to hold your ideas loosely that you don't know anything for 100% or 0%, that it, it, it's somewhere in between. And your job is to find the in-between and to approach every interaction with an, with an open mind, not asking, why am I right? But asking, why am I wrong? And that was the way that I sort of dealt with this kind of weird feeling of regret and sadness as, you know, it's, you know, it's 2006, 2007, and I start doing these seminars in poker. And I, I start realizing, oh, there's so much stuff that I've done wrong. And if I had figured this out earlier, what would have been? And really accepting and acknowledging, well, I did figure it out earlier. So, so my job is actually just to improve as I go forward and take this as an opportunity and not something to regret. So I'm thinking about developing skill acquisition and, and let's use your story of actually starting out to dive even deeper on this, even especially along the terms of, of mentors and things of that nature. So how'd you initially get involved in poker? Oh, that's a funny, long winding story. Um, story of how I got involved in poker is, uh, really, I mean, the short answer is by accident. Um, so I, I, I started my adult life at, at the University of Pennsylvania in graduate school there, uh, working on my PhD in cognitive science. So I did five years there, and I was I was fully intending to become a professor. Um, that was my plan, but uh, I had been struggling, particularly during the during the last year of um, my doctoral program, with some with an illness, which was manifesting with a lot of stomach issues. So I, you know, I was, I was going to a doctor, I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to get better. My plan was, I'm going to go 
and do all of my job talks, my job interviews. And then, um, you know, hopefully I'm going to get this illness figured out. Uh, but luck intervened and I ended up in the hospital for two weeks, pretty sick. And it was the two weeks that I had all of my job talks. So that meant that I had to obviously postpone, cancel, you know, all of my job talks. And obviously I needed recuperation time. So the idea was, okay, I'm going to take some time off from graduate school. Um, and then I'm going to go, I'm going to come back and, and then go, go back out on the job market the next year. So that was, that was the plan that I had. I went off to, at that time I was, I was married and, uh, my husband, now my ex-husband, but he, his family lived in Montana and the idea was we would go out to Montana, you know, I would get like some rest and relaxation, uh, recuperate and then come back to Philadelphia in order to finish. Well, during that time, um, I honestly, I just needed money. And this was long before poker was on television. So there was no way for me to really understand that poker was something that you could do as a living, except that my brother, Howard Letterer, had already been playing poker for about 10 years and had become quite good at it. He was, he was really, he was world-class by this time. Um, so I, it, had he not ever gotten into poker, I, this would have never happened because I wouldn't have even known it was a thing that you could do. But my brother had already been doing it. And he was the one who actually made the suggestion to me that while I was recuperating, I could play poker. And it seemed like a really good idea because, you know, I didn't feel well every single day. So it didn't make sense for me to get any kind of permanent nine to five job, particularly because I was planning to go back to school and, and out on the job market. Um, so that wouldn't have made any sense regardless. And I don't think I could have shown up every day. And so poker seemed like it was sort of an at will, like I could just sort of work when I felt up to it and, and not work when I didn't. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. I was playing in these tiny little poker rooms in Montana, in downtown Billings, Montana, you know, with kind of ranchers and these old guys, you know, smoke, you know, everyone smoked, <laughs> very smoky. Um, <laughs> it's really smoky, you know, in the basement of this place called the Crystal Lounge. And, and that was how the poker career started. So, I mean, how long into this time at the Crystal Lounge did you think, hey, this might actually be something I continue to do? You know, it's it's hard to say. I think it's one of those things where I, I can't really pinpoint a time when I said, okay, I'm making a decision. This is what I'm going to do. I think there were a lot of things that came together that that made me end up staying on that path. And I, I, I stayed on that path for 18 years. I, I didn't retire until 2012. So it was it was a long time that that I didn't go back to graduate school. Um, I, I think it was a combination of two things. First of all, the, the first, I, I, the first month that I played and I was playing $10, $20. So, um, you know, so it was relatively small stakes. This wasn't no limit. It was, it was limit poker, which limits how much you can win in a session. And I remember it, you know, my first month I made $2,800 and, um, you know, starting salary professor at that time was about 23,000. So, I mean, First of all, that was like, ooh, this seems like a lot of money. I don't know how I would spend all of this. Um, which I think it's hilarious, but I remember thinking that. Uh, and then I, I, so I, 
you know, I was, but the players that I was playing against were not, they, they were more on the recreational side, you know, I mean, these weren't serious professionals and I was being tutored, um, by some people who really were serious professionals, uh, people like my brother in particular, and then also like Eric Seidel, who's, who's amazing. And so, uh, the body of knowledge that was sort of being passed down to me was just, uh, you know, obviously a strong body of knowledge in comparison to the body of knowledge that my opponents might've had. And so I was experiencing some, some success pretty early. Um, within a year I'd already played in the world series of poker, um, and cashed. So that, that, you know, that sort of happened relatively fast. And then I think, I think the other thing that, that combined with that was that I didn't feel good. I mean, I was sick and I think that, you know, for for anybody who's been sick, I think a natural response to that is that you kind of want to isolate from the world a little bit because you just don't feel good. And I think that that had a, was a big factor in my having stayed in the game, um, um, you know, and not actually gone out and become a professor because uh, for the, at, for at least the first eight years that I was playing poker, it was not on television. It was very, very anonymous. You know, you would go into these rooms and you'd be playing in these games that, you know, for me, for the first couple of years, it, you know, it was in a basement in Billings. Um, and then eventually it was in Las Vegas, but there were no cameras on the game. You know, nobody really knew who you were. It was, it was, it was kind of an ideal way to retreat from the world. And it, and it happened to be both something that I was making money at and also a problem that I found really, really interesting. Um, sort of how, not just how do you, how do you kind of try to figure out what's the right strategy? You know, how, how do you actually play this game? But then there was this other layer on top of it, which was how do you think about your own thinking and think about your own emotions such that even if you did, even if you did, know what the right strategic choices were that you kind of know you're working off the right belief system and that you're emotionally in a good, good state to be playing. And that, that, that was a super interesting problem for me to unpack. And when it sort of collided with the fact that it was also a way for me to kind of disconnect from the world, um, at a time that I just didn't feel very good. I think that that's sort of what brought it together that I ended up staying. But I, I can't say that there was a moment where I was like, this is my career because it, it was a little more like this felt comfortable for me. And so I kept doing it. No, that's so fascinating. The, the culmination of those things and, and how they all came together there. I'd like to unpack just kind of that beginner's mindset and skill acquisition. When you're first starting out, you mentioned your brother, Eric Seidel, is some great mentors you had. What were you doing early on to, to develop your skills? So first of all, I was playing a lot. Um, there were some books that I read, uh, mainly by a, a guy named David Sklansky and a guy named Mason Malmuth. They, they, they were writing some books that were looking at a, a, a little bit of a more, you know, a mathematical, but also a game theoretical approach to the game. So, um, and then there was also a super assistant by Doral Brunson, which was probably more on the psychological side of the game. Um, uh, there was a guy named Mike Caro who wrote some books, which was uh, which were on poker tells. You know, how do you read people? So I was trying to read what I could, but there honestly, there was not a lot written about. There wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of information in that kind of consumable form. Um, 
but I, I read what I could. Uh, and then mostly what I was doing was playing, keeping track of the hands that I played, particularly the ones that I had questions about, and really doing these big uh, postmortems with my brother um, or whoever I could get my hands on. You know, some it might be Eric Seidel, it might be you know someone like David Gray, um, and and really trying to talk through the places where I had questions. And try to understand the the other thing that I was actually doing quite a bit about of was uh, in cash games. I would sit behind my brother, and if I sat in the right place, he could he could uh, when he looked at his cards, I could see them, so that now I could watch the hand and sort of shat you know sort of in that shadow boxing way, right? I could watch him play a hand out, knowing what his cards were, and then after the game the hands that I had questions about that I didn't really understand uh, something about the choices that he made or where maybe I even, you know, I mean, obviously there was a pivot point at which I might have, I might think there was a different line he could take where maybe I actually did have the better view of it because obviously I'm not in the middle of the hand. So sometimes a person in the middle of the hand might have a better view of it. That was obviously a while in a few years in, but I got to sit, behind him a lot and essentially shadow him as he played. Basically, I got to watch what he did. Um, and that was, that was really incredibly helpful. So, you know, it was a combination of reading what I could find, uh, talking to people who I really respect and get, getting feedback from them, um, not just about hands that I had questions about, but listening to them talk about hands that they had questions about, which was really helpful because I, I, I got to get a view of their thinking about the game, but also understand what kind of questions did they have, right? Which is like incredibly uh, important. And then, and then sitting behind, and then sitting behind my brother, and being able to watch him play, where I had knowledge of what his cards were. Yeah, I think all four of those are so great when when developing new skills. It's funny you mentioned sitting behind your brother, and a lot of different guests on the show have brought up the ability to learn through osmosis, and it sounds like that's a lot like what you were doing there. I'm also interested, you men- mentioned the post-mortem. What does that actually look like? Uh, I know this might sound like a, a bland question, but is this you guys sitting in a room after after playing for a few hours and actually walking through each individual hand? I'm, I'm just trying to extract what you're doing there. Yeah, so so it actually depends. So once you're dealing with experts, the, the experts are talking about hands that they have questions about. So you're leaving it to the expert to be pretty good at identifying the hands that uh, they need to discuss and and sort of leaving aside the hands that are probably pretty uninteresting. Um, and what's really interesting is that for, for the top performers, um, you might think that what they're discussing is hands that they lost, but, but they're very often discussing hands that they won. Um, and in particular, they're discussing hands they won where uh, they won, but you know, they misread the other person's hand. it turns out the other person had a hand that they weren't expecting or they won, but, uh, they made a particular bet where they thought that somebody was going to react in a particular way. And they, they actually reacted in a very different way to the, the hand that they were uh, to, to the way that they had actually chosen. And in terms of, in terms of the line of play, they had, they had chosen, a lot of times, um, a lot of the discussion was around cleanup. It was like, well, you know, I, I was, I knew I had the best hand and I bet this amount 
because I thought that was the maximum amount that I could get the person to call, but they called really fast. And so I'm thinking maybe I could have actually bet more. So there were questions about whether you were maximizing. And that was actually an incredibly important lesson for me very early on was that there, it wasn't just that you should be looking at hands that you lost and wondering how you could have avoided it. That while there was definitely useful information in there, everything in poker, because the edges are somewhat small, is about trying to make, trying to maximize your equity at every moment. And so you are, you can't take for granted that just because you want a hand that there's nothing to explore there. There's often an incredibly rich world to explore. And you should try to be as blind to possible about sort of what the, as possible, what the end result was, whether you actually won or lost the hand and be much more concerned about at each point, was your choice the best, the best choice that you could make. And people don't naturally fall, you know, they don't naturally fall into those thinking patterns. When people are doing postmortems, there's a reason why it's called a postmortem. It means the patient's dead and they're generally talking about bad results you know, and trying to figure out what went wrong, what could we do different, differently, you know, so on and so forth. And what you rarely hear people talking about is uh, everything went great. We, we closed the sale. Um, you know, the appraisal came in higher than expected. We, we released the feature and, you know, the adoption was much greater than we thought. And nobody follows that with, so where did we go wrong? What could we have done better? What were the things the places where maybe we weren't maximizing, did we allocate our resources properly? Um, you know, how was our forecast of the situation? And when I was sitting and listening to people like Eric Seidel and my brother talk, so much of the talk was in that world of, you know, and it was, it was so incredibly enlightening for me. So that, that was really where, where it was, is that you were so little focused on whether you actually won or lost, you were so focused on each individual decision. And was that the best way that I could have gone in that moment? It's funny you mentioned enlightening because this is the idea, this thinking pattern is the thing I've really tried to study the most this past year and really assess my decision, whether the outcome be good or bad and look back and, and how I came to that decision. So I'm, I'm glad you're talking about that now. You brought up Eric Seidel again, and I'm wondering what type of questions were you asking him? Well, so Eric, Eric is a pretty interesting character in my life because he, he said something that I think that most people would consider incredibly brutal very, very early on in my poker career, um, which turned out to be a real life changer for me in a positive way. So Eric Seidel is someone that I'd known actually since I was 16 years old. So when my brother um, had moved to New York, uh, my brother was 18, I was 16. And my brother had had gone to New York. He, he was planning to go to Columbia, um, but had deferred a year uh, because my brother was really, really interested in chess. And so he had found a chess grandmaster that he wanted to study with. and. During that year that he was there, um, he that was when he started playing poker. Um, I think he was introduced to, to it through some of the people that he had met in chess. Uh, he he started playing poker, and Eric was was very early in his career. Also, Eric had done some options trading. He had, he was a very very good backgammon player, and backgammon was actually a place where a lot of poker players came from. Um, and so 
uh, he also was starting to play poker. And my, my brother and Eric became very good friends and really sort of in a lot of ways kind of learned the game together, along with some other people like Dan Harrington, Jason Lester, um, uh, Steve Zolotow. Uh, if you look these people up, you'll see they, they, this sort of interesting cohort uh, in New York City at the time turned out to be you really said some of the most accomplished players in the world. And they, they, they were this cohort of people who were kind of like starting up and learning the game together. So I, I met these people through my brother long before I, it ever occurred to me that I was going to play poker. So I, I had known Eric since I was 16. Um, you know, I knew him, I, I interacted with him while I was going to college. And then, you know, while I was in graduate school and I would, you know, I would go out and I would visit my brother sometimes like during the world series of poker in Las Vegas. And so I would interact with Eric then. And so this was a friendship, but not anything that was, you know, on a professional level or, or, you know, a peer in poker. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't playing any poker. So now, um, now I start playing poker and I started playing poker when I was 26. Um, and I remember very vividly there's, there was a tournament. It was my first world series of poker final table in my whole life. And we were down to six players and I had a situation where someone put all of my chips at risk uh, and I needed to decide whether to call them. And I had a hand that was uh, on the margins in terms of whether it was correct to call or not. Um, And I really thought about it for a very long time and I ended up calling had I won this hand, I think I would have been second or first in chips at the table. And if I lose, I'm out of the tournament. And so I decide to call and it turns out that, uh, my hand is 80, a little over 81% to win. So, so it turns out that after putting a lot of thought into it and deciding that I had, I had the best hand that I did indeed have the best hand. And, and it was by far the best hand by, by a lot. So here I am now, this, you know, it's my first world series of poker final table. I'm playing for basically the chip lead in the tournament. I'm going to get that chip lead over 81% of the time. Boom. I lose the hand. This is a common story in poker. So I, I went up to Eric Seidel and I was distraught. I mean, I was really distraught and I started complaining to him. Um, about, you know, essentially like, can you believe this, this guy, he was such an idiot. How could he have made this play? Blah, 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 blah. Wow. 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 I'm so unlucky. You know, your typical bad beat story as we call them in poker about how the other person was stupid and, you know, and I was so smart and why, why did I get punished for having the best hand? And Eric's response you know, and I'm thinking Eric's my buddy. <laughs> I know since I was 16, he's obviously gonna, you know, pat me on the back and say you didn't do anything wrong, and I'm so sorry that happened to you, and that was really unfair. And that's what I thought he was gonna say. And instead, he said, "Why are you telling me this? Like, I, I, t- I don't care." And I was like, "What?" And you know, he followed it with saying. I play this game all the time. And are you under the impression that I haven't lost in those situations as well? Of course I have. And if the situation is really as you describe, then 
this isn't anything that had to do with your own decision-making. I mean, it, it sounds like you played the hand just fine and bad luck happened. And my God, if you come and talk to me about every time the bad luck happens and you whine to me about it, um, first of all, I'm going to be really annoyed because I'm trying to deal with the own, you know, calm down from my own stuff. And I, I don't really want your emotional baggage, but also you're totally wasting my time because there's literally nothing to be learned from the hand. Like you, you had the best hand. You were over 81% to win. That means you're going to lose a little over 18% of the times. Okay. What, what do you, would you have done something different? Cause if the answer is no, then don't tell me about the hand. But if the answer is, Hey, I'm curious if you think it was right to call in this situation. You know, I'm curious as you, th- if you think there was another way that I would have played that I could have played that hand or if I should have played that hand in a different way, you can talk about that all day. So obviously it was, that was pretty brutal. And I was, I mean, I was a little bit taken aback. I was like, wait, I thought you were my friend. Well, um, I, I love the practicality and the, and the clarity he brought to that. How long did it take for you to, to truly understand the importance of what he said there? Or were you mad for a while? Well, I think on an intellectual level, I, I got it right away. Um, you know, on, on an emotional level, I'm not, I'm still not sure that I get it. Um, I think that it's such a natural thing for human beings to do when things go wrong. To, to look for a way to cause luck to bubble up to the surface as an explanation and just say like, well, you know, that, that feels really unfair. It was unfair because so much of what we're doing as thinkers, as human beings, is trying to move along this narrative of, you know, we're good at what we do and we're smart and our decisions are good. And if the world were just, um, everything would obviously work out great for us. Um, and the groups that we belong to are special and they're distinct in a, in a way that makes us better than other groups. And, you know, all sorts of things that are kind of moving our narrative along. And as we're processing things as they happen in the moment, uh, without even knowing it, we're just doing PR for that story. We're doing PR for our own beliefs. Uh, we're doing PR for the, you know, in this case, for the idea that, like, I, I made good decisions and the only way that I lost was because something horrible happened. and. I want you to affirm for me and confirm for me that it, it was because of bad luck and not because, not because I'm not good, you know, not because I'm not worthwhile, not because I'm not competent. So I, I think that I understood on an intellectual level pretty quickly. And, and what was really important about that was that it gave me a North star, you know, that this is what I'm supposed to be aiming at. Have I ever actually gotten there? No, I, I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not sure that human beings can. But what I have managed to do is know where I'm directed so that I catch myself more often when I fall into that type of thinking trap. Um, I catch myself more quickly when I do. And I at least know what I'm supposed to do to right the ship so that I, I can do that much less. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So let's say that we fall into our regular thinking pattern, right? And our regular thinking pattern is generally could be summed up by like, uh, I want the world to make sense. Um, so I am not really comfortable with randomness except in as much as luck might get me out of a bind, a cognitive bind. So, um, you know, if I lose a hand, luck is a very reliable thing for me to sort of go to. Because that means that um, it wasn't my fault that luck intervened. Um, 
you know, if I didn't get the promotion, it wasn't my fault. It was because of, you know, again, the world happened to me in some sort of way. Right. Um, and then obviously on the other side, when good things happen, you're, you're really looking to take credit for those. So, so you really background luck in that case, and you don't necessarily see where luck might've intervened on your behalf or, or you don't see that. Yes. And that was to the point of what I was saying about the way that poker players are sort of doing these postmortems, like these deconstructions, you might say, see that you had a good outcome and your decision-making was pretty good, but you're not really looking to see if there might've been a better decision even yet, because in some way that makes it feel like you make a, made a mistake, right? So you're not particularly eager to explore that. And so obviously in all sorts of ways that hampers your ability to learn because you're making, you're taking really bad lessons, right? There, there's places where you're having bad outcomes and you're just kind of blaming it on luck, but maybe it's actually, there was a, there were different decisions that you could have made that could have reduced the chances of that bad outcome, for example, or, or maybe your decisions were uh, pretty good, but actually ha- had you made better decisions, you would have lost more than you did. That can actually come up. That's a, that's kind of an interesting thing that can happen, but because you're just blaming it on luck and not thinking about your own decisions, um, you're, you're, you're really not learning what your experience is trying to teach you there. And likewise on, on the other, on the flip side, when you have a good outcome and you're patting yourself on the back for it, you're now going to overestimate in most cases, the probability that if you were to take those same actions again, that you would have that same good outcome and, and think about what you're missing there, right? You're missing opportunities to figure out, well, actually I had to have a lot of good luck get in the way there um, in order for that to happen. And so maybe it, it wasn't my decision. You know, I mean, obviously in the simplest case, you can say if you run a red light and you get through safely, that doesn't mean you should be running a lot of red lights. But in a lot of ways, that's the way we behave, right? We, we start to think like, oh, no, that was a really good decision because look at how well it turned out. And now you're repeating um, behaviors that you shouldn't be. Or you, you have a good outcome and there's some great opportunity for you to explore how you actually could have even made a higher equity decision. One, one that, that would have, could have, could have had a higher probability of turning out. Well, you don't even explore that. So you're, you're missing that whole learning opportunity there. And so this way that we're processing those outcomes to move our narrative along, it's really helpful for our narrative in the moment, right? In in terms of that drive to feel good about ourselves, but it's actually incredibly damaging in the long run because it really either causes us to slow down our learning or we learn the completely wrong lessons, which means that some future version of you is not going to have improved the decision-making, your decision-making as much as you could have had you actually been looking at those lessons that that you were being offered in that moment that, that might've caused you to feel sad because you would have had to say, well, maybe it was my own decision-making or maybe I could have made a better decision or maybe it was luck that caused this good outcome. Um, but you're not willing to make that trade. So by Eric Sadell having, having kind of laid this down for me in, in such an incredibly clear way, it, it told me what I was shooting for. And by teaching me what I was shooting for, what it meant was maybe had he never said that to me, out of 100 opportunities, to catch these kinds of errors. Maybe I would have caught five, but now because he showed me what I'm shooting for, maybe I catch 10. So I double my chances to learn j- just there. And 
you know, I suppose you could look at it as like 90% of the time it's sliding on by, but I'm looking at as I just doubled, I doubled my learning opportunities, which I think is the right way to look at that. And, and so that's number one is that I'm catching more of them. But number two is that I, I think that it also speeds up how quickly you catch it. So the, the example that I like to give is, you know, I'll, I'll say to people that I'm working with, you know, hey, is there anything that you believed when you were 20 that you, you know, with really strong conviction, like you were very sure that you were right about it when you were 20. And now looking back on it, you realize, oh my gosh, that was a ridiculous thing to be believe, right? And obviously people always laugh because the answer is usually most of what I believed when I was 20. So, you know, the question is, do you want to wait until you're 40 to have that realization? Or do you want to figure that out when you're 20? And I think that what Eric allowed me to do in that one exchange was to start figuring it out when I was 20 instead of when I was 40. In other words, because I was sort of looking for those opportunities, I was able to recognize, I think, more quickly when uh, some belief that I had uh, or some way that I had processed my experience might have been biased in the favor of my self-narrative, but not not necessarily in the favor of, of what my goals were in the long run. Yeah, no, it gets back to strong opinions loosely held. And I think a large reason I do this podcast is to improve my decision-making and speed up how quickly I catch things. Do you think it's incredibly helpful and almost essential to have an unbiased coach to assess those decisions for you? Or can you do this all on your own? Well, first of all, I just would like to, I would, I would like to uh, dispel the idea of an unbiased coach. Sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you know, we're all, we're all trying to do some PR for our own beliefs. So your, your coach is going to be doing some of that, that as well. That being said, having a, co- a coach that's really trying to work on this with you is much better than not having one at all. So, um, cause you're, you're going to get closer there. And again, I want to give that idea of it's an, it's the North star, you know, but none of us have the capability yet of traveling, you know, into space. So you're just trying to get closer to it. Um, you can do some of this work on your own, but it, it's an, it's incredibly hard. Um, it's very hard to spot your own bias. It's very hard to see when you're doing this PR for your own beliefs. It's really hard to figure out when you're spinning a narrative, when you're highlighting particular information and lowlighting other information. You can make a little bit of progress, but it's much easier if you have other people looking from the outside in particularly other people who you have an agreement with where you've, where you've given them permission to, to really challenge you, um, to really say, you know, have you thought, you know, here's a completely different way to think about it. Or I, I'm, I'm looking at the same information you are and I'm processing it in a completely different way. I'm drawing totally different conclusions. I am looking at the data that you're using. And I'm thinking about all this other data. And I think that maybe, you you know, you're not incorporating that or you're spinning the data in a particular way. Like these, these things that I think that in normal conversation, people would find very challenging to hear. I, I think that in normal conversation, hearing those things can really feel kind of like an assault on your identity. Like you're being told you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. I think, I think something different and I'm telling you you're wrong as opposed to hearing it with an open mind and saying, Here's somebody who has a different opinion than I do. And it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It means that there's an opportunity to explore 
uh, their opinion and, and find out what the space is in the middle so that we can figure out what's accurate here and to actually look at that as an opportunity. But I think that you have to go into that kind of relationship with that mindset. I think that you need to be making an agreement to be open-minded to what the person has to say and, and to really listen to them and argue with them in good faith. Um, I actually would, I don't want to use the word argue because it feels adversarial, like to actually discuss these things with them um, in good faith, where the goal is for you both to find the truth as opposed to for you to win the argument, for you to prove that the thing that you believed is right. And I, I have seen that implemented successfully, certainly in poker. Um, and I, I believe that people can implement these kinds of groups successfully where they can really watch each other's back. And, and, you know, the thing is that we all know that when we're watching other people talk, we can see their bias a lot more clearly than we can see our own. And to be able to say to people, I know you're going to be able to see my bias more clearly than I do. And I know that you have a different set of experiences and a different set of beliefs that are going to be driving your narrative in a way that's different than mine. And if we purposely allow those narratives to interact with each other and to clash, not in a way where one of us is trying to be right or one of us is trying to be wrong, but where we're both trying to be accurate. And so we're, we're really trying to see how those narratives talk to each other and try to find the truth. I think you can, I think you can really do a lot of good for yourself. And by the way, for the other people in the group, they're, they're going to benefit tremendously from it as well. I'm thinking about assembling one of these groups. How important is it to bring in people with completely different domain expertise? So speaking in a poker context, do you bring in people who have never played before to bring in different ideas? Is that important for you? So I think it depends on kind of what the, what the goal of the group is. So I think it's, it's really great to have sort of like mentor mentee relationships. Um, I think it's really good to have people basically trying to learn from the interaction of experts with each other. Uh, so having someone who doesn't really understand it in the group, I think is really good because they can also challenge and say, Hey, I don't understand this. Please explain it to me. Or I have a different idea. And sometimes they can come up with really interesting ideas, right? Because they're not handcuffed to the way things have always been within your area of expertise. Um, I do think that sometimes it's important to just have experts talking to each other just for the, for a matter of speed. But if the experts are talking to each other, I think it's really important that it doesn't become an echo chamber um, because that can happen um, when you have experts uh, speaking to each other, particularly experts who have the same sort of worldview. So what I think is really important is to make sure that there's cognitive dispersion within the group, that people are coming to it with different ideas, with different worldviews, with different beliefs, that those are being allowed to live. I think it's it's also really important important to recognize that uh, groups tend to experience contagion, um, meaning that when ideas are discussed together in the group, people tend to cohere as opposed to disperse. And that, so what you want to do is try to make sure that you're reducing the amount of contagion as, as you're working together so that you can, you're more likely to see where people disagree with each other. So uh, like a, a simple example would be, um, uh, if you're in, in, on a team that's evaluating an investment to make sure that 
each person on the team is writing down their um, opinion, beliefs, the feedback on the investment in a way that is um, way back to the beginning of the conversation. When I was talking about, you have to go into it knowing, like, I need to know about position. I need to know about how often you bet. I need to know for any, for any decision like that, there's certain things that you need to know. There needs to be a framework for the way that you're thinking about it. And so you provide that framework to each of the people in the group. And then they're, they're basically giving their opinion within that free framework independently before they come together to just start to discuss it in the group. And that maximizes people's comfort with offering decisions that might disagree with, for example, the majority in the group. Um, and that acts as a, as a way to de-bias. So you can have someone who, who is a novice who doesn't come from it. And that, that's certainly a way to make sure that you're getting a different point of view and certainly to make sure that you're to, to the point of the, the way that I was doing poker seminars that you, you have to be able to justify your beliefs to, to someone who really doesn't know and get them to understand it. If you don't have somebody like that in the group, doing these kind of quarantine exercises also really helps to foster the um, cognitive diversity. And you have to operate the group in a way where people feel comfortable disagreeing with consensus. And I think it's important too, to recognize that these aren't just groups where you meet in person. It's funny in your book, you bring up, look at your Twitter timeline and mm-hmm. how much of that worldview is going to be the exact same. So I, I was reading the book over the weekend and immediately looked at mine. And I'm like, you're right. It, it's too similar. I've, I've got to bring in some different viewpoints here. One thing I would love to discuss is 2004. And I mean, your first world series of poker bracelet, what is that like for you? Oh gosh. It was, I mean, it was very validating. Um, I think that, I mean, it's, it's like anything. It's like when you're doing something professionally and trying to develop expertise at something and you're working really, you know, you're working really hard at it, um, just to be able to have that kind of external validation obviously feels very, very good. Um, and I remember, you know, winning that bracelet and just being ecstatic, really kind of feeling like, okay, I, I feel like less of an imposter now, you know, um, that I've actually managed to accomplish this. So did you have imposter syndrome all the way up until then? I still do. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> they, they, they do, I guess, but it's just so interesting hearing someone as accomplished as you. I think that's great for both myself to hear. And then, and then even the listeners listening to this, uh, it's just, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know what I think? I think that inside of your own brain, looking from the inside out, I think that it's much easier for you to get a lot of focus on the things that you don't know or the different ways that you could have said something like after the fact that you thought would have been better. Or like, if you think about a poker hand, like if you watch me play a hand from your perspective, it might look pretty good, but I'm going off and I'm imagining all the different ways that I could have played it. And of course in there, I'm discovering all sorts of ways, which, which I could have done better. Right. No, no, you're not seeing that. Right. And so I think that it's, I think that I sort of feel like it's very easy to have imposter syndrome because you're living much more in the counterfactuals, right? Like you're living much more in the things you could have done or the, or the worlds that you could have lived or, or also just in the negative space of the stuff that you don't know. 
when you're talking to me, I get to talk to you about the stuff that I know. And so you look at me and you're like, wow, she knows a lot, you know, but it's because we're not, we're not talking about the stuff that I don't know, but, but I'm really aware of the stuff that I don't know. And I I think one of, one of the ways that I can sort of maybe explain this is so, you know, so I give keynotes all the time and I don't, I don't read off of a script. I have some slides, but the slides uh, don't have a lot of words on them. They're more like ways for the audience to kind of know where, where, what the main point is of what I'm about to say. So in every single talk that I give, you know, there's something that maybe I said the, the, the talk before that I didn't get to or that I didn't say or some way in which I feel like I said some particular thing, but in the past I've said it better or some way, so, something that I leave out like, Ooh, I left out this whole, you know, three minute section because that just happens when you're speaking without an actual script in front of you and you haven't memorized the, the speech. But from the perspective of the audience, they don't know that I said it differently in the last keynote. They don't know that there were three minutes that I forgot to say. They, they only see what I said and they like what I said. And so from their perspective, it's like, oh, you know, she did a very good job. And from my perspective, I'm like, oh, I left this thing out or I could have said that better or, or you know, I, I forgot to say this thing or, oh, I should say this differently in the future. And I think that once you're really, you're so much more aware of what didn't you know, what didn't you do, what could you have done? How could you have said it better? All of that stuff that I think it's very hard not to end up with imposter syndrome. I'd be so interested looking back in 2004, the winner take all uh, tournament of champions winning $2 million. Looking back, why were you able to come out on the winning end of that? Do you think you played the best poker at the time? I think the chances of that are like practically zero. I mean, you know, it was like, there was Chip Reese and Doyle Brunson and, and Phil Ivey and, you know, my brother and Daniel Negreanu and, uh, I mean, oh my gosh, uh, Johnny Chan, Phil Helmuth. It was a crazy table. Um, was that the best final table in World Series of Poker? It, it was a, an assembled final table. So they, they assembled those people specifically for that event. And, you know, these were the best players in the world. and and in particular for that one, I mean, one, one of the things that was really gratifying, I mean, talk about playing into a imposter syndrome. <laughs> there were a lot of people who were, who were complaining that the reason why I got invited to that table was because I was a woman, but not because I was actually, because I actually deserved to be there by skill. And here's the thing they, they may have been right. I mean, uh, for sure. Like, uh, you know, obviously there's very, very few women who play poker. There are very few women to choose from. I had just won the, the, you know, bracelet that year. And, um, you know, I think it was good for them to have a woman there. And so they, they could have been right that, that I had no business being at that table. And, and I probably was there because I was a woman. I would, I would probably agree with them about that. But when they're, when you hear people saying that over and over again, you know, that, that, that can get to you and you, you can sort of be like, man, all these people are saying I shouldn't be at this table. It's just because I'm a woman. So what were you telling yourself walking through the doors that day? please don't let me be the first one out. I, <laughs> I just felt like, oh my God, that would just prove, you know, that would prove everything that they've been saying. 
So, um, so I was really like, please don't let me be the first one out. Um, so, you know, I had, I, I think that, I think I did actually play very well that day. I, I wouldn't say that I played better than everybody else because they were all, I mean, these were the best players in the world. Um, and I had a lot of stuff break my way. I mean, there was one particular hand that I really had break my way where it was actually against my brother, where, you know, that, that situation that I was complaining to Eric Seidel about way back when, where I was supposed to win the hand over 81% of the time, I got on the wrong end of that against my brother. Uh, and I actually won. So, so, um, now had that not happened, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't have won the tournament because I wouldn't have been out. I had about double the chips of my brother when that happened. I actually ended up knocking him out. So who knows, you know, maybe I would have won the tournament anyway, but I did have that very big thing go my way. And it was certainly pivotal to, um, uh, to things working out for me. And then, and then a lot of it is just, you know, there's a lot of poker, which is, is in some ways sort of like hidden luck where you sort of feel like you're playing very well, but there's a lot of luck involved in getting you into a position where you can play very well. So, you know, as an example, uh, you know, there was a hand where I think I had Queens and I think Johnny Chan had eights, as I recall, and I have to get lucky enough to happen to have Queens against his eights and, and be in a situation where we're both going to get all our money in the pot and I'm going to win that pot. Right. So, I mean, did, did I play the hand? Well, I mean, I'm sure that I played the hand just fine, but I had to be lucky enough to have that matchup occur. Right. So all sorts of things, all sorts of things went my way, but um, it was a particularly, it was a particularly sweet victory because there really was like a lot of chatter. Like she's only there because she's a woman and, and you know, what, whether there's truth to that or not, it doesn't, it doesn't feel very good when people are pretty vocally kind of running down your abilities. Um, so it, that was, that was pretty amazing to win. That felt, that felt really good. I'm not going to lie to you. Was that the most memorable win you've ever had? No. Um, the most memorable win I had was in 2010 in the NBC national heads up championship. I'm so glad this is it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, first of all, by the way, speaking of the power of teaching, I finished teaching a seminar the day before I started playing in that event. And I had made some real leaps in the way that I was thinking about the game as I had been preparing for that seminar, where I, that was one of those moments where I really discovered some big change, like some big holes in my thinking. And I, I, I really sort of filled in those gaps. In order to be able to teach that seminar, it was one of those times when I had really explored, you know, some things that I had had thought held pretty deeply as true and sort of started to poke holes in them. So now I, I come into the heads up and, and I think that I actually had made a level jump um, in my play because of that teaching experience that had come right before it. So so there's the power of teaching. But uh I ended up heads up that the last player gets down. So they, the, the NBC heads up national championship, they, they set up like March madness. So you start off with 64 players and you're paired up one-on-one and it's a single elimination. So now I get to the finals and who am I against, but Eric Seidel. So you know, this is a big deal. I mean, I've known Eric since I was 16 and obviously Eric had act in, acted in this very big mentorship role with me throughout my career. He was absolutely one of my best friends. And, um, you know, we end up the final two, um, in this, in this match. And 
that, that for me is definitely the most memorable win. And I think that the thing that's most memorable for me in a lot of ways about it, I mean, aside from, you know, actually winning against this person who I held in such amazing esteem was that it was a very interesting thing because everything up until the, the final two was single elimination, but the last, last match, what you had to play three rounds and it was the best of three. So what's interesting is that while, while Eric knew, you know, certainly quite a bit about my game and, and we had played together quite a bit, he wasn't really familiar with how I played heads up, uh, which is just one-on-one. So I think that in the first, in the first, um, heads up match, um, he was actually very confused by me. And I would say like, if I'm, you know, in a totally honest way, I would say that I actually kind of outplayed him. I think because his, the model that he had of me was, wasn't quite right. Cause he just hadn't had a lot of experience with me in that situation. And I, w- I think I was doing some things that were quite unexpected for him. So I, I won that first one and I felt like I won that relatively easily. So now we come back to play the second match and he's completely adjusted. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It was like anything that I had been doing before that I think might've confused him. He now kind of unlocked the key to my game. And I felt it very strongly. He'd really figured out how to counter what I was doing. So he won the second match. And and what I realized was that he's just better than I am. And whatever I do in terms of trying to adjust, he's going to adjust more quickly to me than I am to him. And once I realized that, I said, well, he's going to outthink me here. And so the more decisions that I have to make against him, the worse it is for me because he's going to have an advantage on every single decision. So the, you know, it, the more of these that I have to make, yeah, I'm kind of dead. Uh, it, it's kind of thinking about it. Like, uh, let's say that you were in a situation where you were flipping a coin and you were going to, um, lose like we were betting where if you lost you had to pay me a dollar 50 and if i lose i have to pay you a dollar okay so you're losing 25 cents every single flip and i say to you do you want to just flip once or do you want to flip 10,000 times in this particular case it's probably better for you to just flip once and hope you get lucky and get my dollar 50 or or get my dollar rather because if you flip 10,000 times, you're guaranteed to lose that money. It's enough time that that disadvantage that you have on every single flip is going to realize. And you're definitely going to have to give me money. But if you flip once, you know, maybe you can win. So that was sort of the attitude that I took into that was this just sort of recognizing like, oh, oh no, this, he's much better than I am. And so let me, let me not make 10,000 decisions against him and let me actually try to reduce the number of decisions that I make against him. So I started playing a style that um, was going to allow luck into the equation a lot more. Um, and then, you know, kind of hope that luck went my way. And that's what I did. And luck went my way and ended up winning it. Um, and I was very proud of myself for figuring that out. You know, I was very proud of myself for, for saying, yeah, that was pretty scary what happened in the second match. Like he's way better than I am. 
I better start to try to get lucky here instead. You mentioned that he unlocked the key to your game. Have you and Eric ever discussed that? Oh, yeah. We did. And he 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 kind of demurred and said, I, no, I was giving him too much credit. <laughs> um, you know, but that's kind of Eric's idea. Like, Eric is a super humble guy. And I, I think that he would kind of, you know, demur in that in that spot. Um, cause I did say that to him. I was like, Oh my gosh, no, that was like terrifying. <laughs> you, you really figured me out. <laughs> and he was like, and he was telling, no, no, I just, you know, I just got really good cards or I don't know. He tried, he tried to sort of swat it away, which is very Eric. Um, you know, but I'm, I, I'm very confident in my assessment of that situation. What's the most brilliant you've ever seen someone play. And if, if it was Eric there, let's pick another example. Um, you know what? I don't, I don't think that it was Eric there. I think that, uh, if I had to think about the most brilliant player that I've ever seen. So what I would say is that I I happen to be somebody, and this is just my own bias that puts a lot of stock in somebody's ability to think across game. So, so let me explain what I mean. There's a lot of different forms of poker. So broadly we, we can start with there's cash games and tournaments and the, the type of things that you might do in order to succeed in a tournament, different tactics will work in a tournament that wouldn't necessarily work in a cash game and vice versa um, because of the structure of those situations. But then beyond just there's tournaments and cash games, there's also different forms of poker. So there's seven card stud, there's hold'em, there's different forms of Omaha, all of those things sort of come in high-low split versions or straight high versions or straight low versions. Um, so there's like, there's all those different ways that it is. And then there's different betting structures. So there could be limit, there's spread limit, there's pot limit, there's no limit. So the, there's really a lot of different ways that poker can be played. And, and I put a lot of, I happen to put a lot of value in someone who can play across all of those conditions really well. Because there are people who are like super duper specialists who might be really, really, really amazing at no limit hold'em tournament poker, for example. And that's what they're really, really good at. But if you put them over in a cash game, stud eight or better, they, they maybe wouldn't adjust to that very well. So I'm just, I'm just announcing my bias to start that I, I put a lot of stock in this ability to kind of like solve across games much more than just solve within game. So that's just, you know, that doesn't mean that that's correct. It's just, it's just the way that I think about things. Um, and if I had to think about, you know, a couple of people who really are brilliant across games, the, the two people that would come to mind would be Phil Ivey and, uh, John Hennigan. So I think, I think Phil Ivey is probably much better known than John Hennigan, but boy, John, John Hennigan is, absolutely one of the most brilliant players I've ever seen. He's mentioned in my book, uh, for a crazy bet that he made about moving to Des Moines, but, um, he's somebody who you can put him in a pot limit game or no limit game or, a um, you know, a limit game and it could be Hold'em or stud or, or Raz or Omaha or, you know, triple draw or whatever, like you name it. And he's just great. And he sees things that other people don't see. And he's 
creative and he can read other people so well. And he sometimes just does stuff where you're just like, how did he even figure that out? And he can do it across all these different forms of poker. I mean, really, really brilliant. And, you know, and Phil Ivey, certainly when I was playing, I mean, I I obviously haven't played in a while, but certainly when I was playing, I, I I would put in the same category as well. And and that's where I really start to, you know, feel like I had no business ever, ever, ever walking the same path as, as these players, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I, I grew up idolizing Phil Ivey, John Hennigan, someone I know much less about, but but read that story in your book. So have him jot it down. Someone I'm going to have to do a lot of research on. When you and I first jumped on, I, I mentioned that your book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, is the book that has been brought up more times by the guests on this podcast. And a lot of very influential people use your book as a framework. I'm curious, what things are you consuming to build upon your knowledge? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I'm in, I'm in the middle of, I've, I've got a manuscript due in June. So I, at the moment, I'm mostly consuming my own <laughs> manuscript. I just want to say that. Uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about um, different ways to think about chance. And there, there's a great book called... Um, I want to get you the right title. I think it's 10 great ideas about chance. Um, yeah. So there, there's a book called 10 great ideas about chance, um, uh, by Percy Diaconis that was recommended to me by my friend, Addie Weiner, Abraham Weiner, um, which I think is, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's more obscure. I mean, this isn't, you know, it's not on the bestseller list, but I think it's, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about chance. Um, particularly the difference between, for example, like uncertainty and risk and so on and so forth. And so I've been really interested in that. Uh, the model thinker um, is something that uh, I've been thinking about a lot, um, uh, which is um, really, it's by, um, uh, it's by Scott Page and really thinking about how, you know, how, how are we using mental models? What, what are the advantages of using mental models in order to think about the world? How do you make sure that mental models are sort of interacting with each other in, in a way that it gets you to the truth more quickly along those same lines? Um, you know, uh, Shane Parrish and what he does on Farnham street. Um, he's very, very into mental models. He actually just also published a book, which is a book of mental models. And I, I consume a lot what he's doing. So, uh, there's a book that's going to be coming out on June 18th that is called super thinking. And it's by, um, Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann. And I had the pleasure of getting to read an advanced copy of that. And it's called the big book of mental models. And it's a brilliant book that basically takes like any mental model that you could imagine. And it just weaves them together in terms of showing you what the advantage of thinking in mental models and how you apply mental models to the world and how that can really improve the way that you think in your, your decision-making. And, um, it, it, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. So a lot of stuff in that space of thinking about, uh, of mental models and really exploring the advantages of mental models for sure that I I've really been consuming quite a bit of, um, trying to think what else, uh, 
I've been really interested and looking into a lot of the science around the intersection of identity and belief, particularly a lot of the stuff that Jay, Jay Van Bavel is doing um, and his colleagues over at NYU. Um, really kind of trying to think about the way that our identities um, interact with our belief systems, and in particular, the way that our identities bias um, our beliefs and the way that we process information, um, the effect of tribe. Uh, and tribal membership or group membership on the way that we process information, which I think is an incredibly interesting topic. Um, so I've been also consuming a lot, definitely in that space as well. So, I mean, it, there's more stuff, but I think that's probably enough for you. That was a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. I geek out around mental models. Uh, so I appreciate some of the new things you brought up there that I'll have to look up. I, I know we are out of time. This is so funny. I've never had more questions left on my notepad oh, no. for guests than for you. I, I literally could go on for, for 10 hours with you, but I, I know you need to get going here. You mentioned the manuscript you're working on. Can you, can you give a preview of that at all? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, one of the things that uh, people ask me all the time with thinking in bets, and, and this is definitely what I do through my consulting work, is okay, these, these are, you know, as sort of a big idea framework, like th this is an interesting way to think about the world, but how do I actually implement it? Like, how do I actually do it? Um, and, you know, th that's obviously like in my consulting work, I'm doing a lot of that, showing people how you actually implement these ideas, like into the, the decision culture. Um, uh, both either within your own life or within your own groups or within your own enterprise, you know, organization team. Um, but, you know, thinking in bets is much more about how do you, how do you think about the world? Right. And, and as it gets into the latter half of the book, it, it does have some more practical um, uh, ways that you could, you could implement this kind of thinking, but it's not really meant to teach you how to make a decision. So uh, after that book came out and, and enough people said to me, okay, but then how do I use that to actually make a decision? I decided, well, okay, I, I should write a book that really shows somebody how to make a decision using this kind of framework. So that's essentially, that, that's really what I'm doing is how, how do you actually start to think about uh, outcomes in a more rational way? How do, how do you actually construct new decisions, uh, figure out how you're forecasting the future, how you're comparing options, how do you really implement in a practical way the way that you're communicating with other people so that you make sure that the feedback you're getting is of the highest quality. Um, in particular, because there we, we have this stuff, you know, each, each of us has stuff we know, this box that's stuff we know, but the stuff we don't know is, you know, magnitudes of, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than the stuff we know. And in order, you know, one of the prime directives for becoming a better decision maker is to start to get to the, the world to tell you more stuff, to fill in those gaps, to make it so that your knowledge is, is less imperfect because our knowledge is really imperfect. There's, it's, there's tons of hidden information. There's so much we don't know. And, and one of the biggest problems that we have is that when we're trying to get that information from the world, our own beliefs are driving so much about the way that we're processing the information that's coming in that we're not actually improving what we know, certainly not to the degree that we think we are. 
So a lot of the book, particularly the second half of the book, this particular book is, is really about how do we make it so that we can extract more information from the world, that we can get people to give us better feedback so that we can process the information that's coming in in a less biased way so that we can constantly be doing both an internal audit, a really good internal audit of our own beliefs, and also get the most objective uh, processing possible out of the knowledge of other people and get move that into our own head. That is absolutely right up my alley. Any idea when that might be coming out? Yeah, so the, the manuscript is due June 15th. Let me just cross my fingers on that one because um, <laughs> I... Well, I just, I've just had a very, I've had a super busy travel schedule the, the past uh, couple of months. And what I discovered in that super busy travel schedule is that books are not written well in half hour spurts. So I'm a little behind. It's okay. Um, but I'm, I'm chugging along. I'm, I'm a little over halfway done. Um, you know, and we'll see, hopefully I'll get it done, but I'm, I'm, the manuscript's going to get turned in this summer, certainly by July. Um, and then this happens to be a book that's going to take a little bit longer in terms of layout. So I, I would expect it probably, uh, summer of 2020 would be my guess. Well, I'm certainly going to be pre-ordering that. I'm assuming in 2021 on this podcast, it's going to be the most brought up book. We, we, <laughs> we can only hope so. But Annie Duke, I really did enjoy this conversation. I can't thank you enough. I know you do a lot of consulting. We have a lot of professional coaches on uh, that listen to this, business owners. If they're interested in that, where can we direct them? And then anyone just wanting to consume more of your stuff, where, sh- where should they go? Oh, well, thank you. Um, so the, the kind of one-stop shop is AnnieDuke.com. Um, and if you go there, uh, there's a lot of video up there of me speaking. There's a contact form where you can contact me either for professional reasons, um, or I just like to hear from people who've heard me, me speak. So I really love interacting with readers. I really love interacting with listeners. Um, I learn a lot from everyone of those exchanges, um, it's always very interesting to see what people got out of my book because it's not always some, you know, sometimes they'll take points uh, that weren't things that I thought were really highlighted, for example, you know, and I'll say, oh, that's really, that's really interesting that they, that they saw that thing and kind of took that away. And um, they give me all sorts of new ideas and new resources. So I welcome, you know, don't ever think you're bothering me if you hit that contact form, because I really welcome it. And I, I think that I get much more out of the exchange probably than the people who are writing in. Then I also have a newsletter um, so people can look at the archives of the newsletter on annieduke.com. And if they like it, you can subscribe. Um, and that is really applying this kind of framework to what's happening in the world. Uh, usually during the, that week that I put the newsletter out, it's free. So when you subscribe, you, you will not have to pay for it, um, uh, except for in email box clutter, I guess. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Annie Duke. I'm, I'm relatively active there in, in terms of posting stuff that I'm seeing in, in science or business or, you know, technology or um, whatever. So that that's another place that you can find me. And then, you know, you can get my book on Amazon. Yep. That book is Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. So uh, the other thing that I would love for people listening to go check out is a few years ago, I co-founded an organization, which at the time was called How I Decide. We, we've just actually officially changed our name to the Alliance for Decision Education. 
And what we're trying to do is really build the field and create a movement around bringing decision education into K through 12. Um, in the same way that 20 years ago, nobody had heard of social emotional learning, you know, or SEL or, or thought that this was something important to be giving kids when they were young. We feel the same way about decision education that we do a lot. Of, we spend a lot of time with kids, you know, teaching them, uh, you know, trigonometry and not a lot of time teaching them. How do you think about a decision? What is a decision? How do you compare options? How do you think about costs and benefits? And uh, how do you think about the future as probabilistic? Or, or how do you think about your own habits? What would you, you know, how would you change a habit if you wanted to? How, how would you reinforce habits if you, if you didn't want to? Um, and we really believe that this is incredibly important, particularly as the amount of information that people are interacting with on a daily basis is obviously skyrocketed and a byproduct of how much information is available is that we become much more reliant on proxies. Um, you know, is it someone I like? Is the person from my tribe? Is it someone I follow on Twitter? Um, in terms of trying to decide what's true and what's not true. And I think that we really need to be just laser focused on really teaching kids, like, how do you interact with information? How do you decide what's true? How do you decide what's not true? How do you make a decision? Um, and we really, we're really working to build a movement around this. So if people are, uh, feel as passionate about that as I do, I would love for them to go check out the Alliance for uh, Decision Education and, and hopefully become an ally of the cause. No, definitely. I, I now have a young son. This is something I think about a great deal. So we'll definitely have that linked up. Please check that out. Uh, this was a true honor for me to be able to speak with you. I'm so happy you came on. So Annie Duke, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I'm wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to Globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, 
and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights? Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.